And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. Can't move, I can't say. Please be kind, especially when we don't know what's going on. So what I got? Movies are dreams that you never forget. Hey, well, welcome to the Watch List. My name is Russ Matthews. My name is Ben McKechn, not Laura Bennett. Not Laura Bennett. I'm from Real Dialogue, and Ben is from Hope 103.2, but also has an extensive career of doing film reviews. So it's so great to be able to have you on as the co-host this week as we look at film through the lens of faith. Um, And... This can be a fascinating week. I, I, I'm looking forward to kind of look, uh, looking at some of the filmmakers in this edition. We have both Wes Anderson and Guy Ritchie that we're going to kind of look at that both have labels of their own films. Really, you kind of look at a film and you kind of know it's a Wes Anderson film or a Guy Ritchie film. But before that, we're going to actually get into probably one of the most uh, the biggest film, one of the biggest films of the year. I mean, it's outpacing Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Fast and the Furious, all of these things unexpectedly. Sound of Freedom. So we're going to be talking about that one today, and I'm looking forward to kind of hearing about it. We both have seen this film, so I'm looking forward to what both of us kind of bring to this as far as this discussion on this very unique film, um, especially this year. Hey, Ben, I I thought you would uh, maybe just kind of set us up. What is Sound of Freedom? Apart from some of the things you just described there, Russ, which I think we'll end up talking about more than maybe the actual film, like what's blown up (laughs) around the film. But within the film itself, what Sound of Freedom is about, it's loosely based on a true story of a guy called Tim Ballard, who used to be a US federal agent who was working in child protection, protecting kids, saving kids, rescuing kids out of being trafficked into slavery. Awful, awful stuff. And the movie depicts him, played by Jim Caviezel, at a moment where he's had a long career and he's challenged about, well, but what has he actually done? He's put pedophiles and predators in jail, but has he actually saved children? And then the rest of the movie is him basically like on a one-man mission. He's helped by others, but he ends going ends up going a bit rogue, going off out of the country into Colombia to rescue a particular young girl that's come across his path. So really the whole movie is about him and can he save this girl from the awful slavery, modern slavery that she's trapped in. Right. So... In that setup, you know, when you're thinking about Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Fast and the Furious, then you kind of think of a film about um, sex trafficking, child trafficking, slavery. How is it that this film is so big is amazing to me, but I just want to know, Ben, did you like it? Did you enjoy the film? I, I did. I reckon it's like a solid three out of five stars kind of movie. It'll remind a lot of people of Taken, the Liam right. Neeson film, of which I'm not a huge fan of. I, I really objected to the vigilanteism in that film and how many people seem to justify the excessive violence, of which I don't think this film has Sound of Freedom. No. But where people were justifying the actions in that film, I thought Sound of Freedom justified itself a bit better. It, it, didn't, uh, it didn't exploit its subject matter. Instead, it just plonks us in this awful situation and you get the movie bookended by family scenes that, you know, become increasingly disturbing in the middle but without trying to give the game away at the end. So the way the film, I thought, uh, anchored us in this world, this horrible world of children being trafficked, Mm. um, I thought they did a pretty solid job of then presenting it as a mainstream US film and, yeah, it becomes a bit of an action film as it goes along but doesn't become so much, Russ, where it detracts from what I thought really was the message of the film, which is this is awful, this should be stopped. Yeah, exactly. Well, but 
I guess that's one thing I guess I really, I liked about the film and that, not I liked about it, but that I felt I respected about the film was that they took us to kind of to the point of the horror of what we're kind of experiencing here in this whole scenario, but yet close the curtain in time. So not to take us across the line into something that would really be a travesty to even have to try and experience or even. Yeah. Which makes total sense, doesn't it? Because the sensitivity of the subject matter, like you, you don't need to present it for anyone really to be gripped by how horrible it is. Exactly. You just don't. And I'm with you. I think the filmmakers understood that as they went through. And if you read a little bit more about Tim Ballard and what he's been involved with, he seems like a guy who uh, is a bit prone to embellishment, let's say, or at least he's alleged to have <laughs> embellished things. And we'll get onto this in a minute, I think, of some of, some of the uh, controversy that's blown up around the film. But on screen, I thought Jim Caviezel largely played him as a guy who's confronted with a horrible situation that he's been confronted with for some time. But when he gets challenged with what are you going to do personally about this, he basically goes on a one-man crusade. But in a way of like, I didn't think he was the next action hero. I just thought he was a guy who wants to do the right thing, which is a good link with the covenant that we're going to talk about later on, which I think is a stronger example of pretty much exactly the same idea what will you do when you are confronted with evil? Will you do the right thing? Or when something is wrong, will you do the right thing? I think, I think that that's actually probably one of the, the, the key points for me because if a lot of people have gone, why do I want to go watch a movie about this subject matter? And I, I thought, well, I think in, better than looking at it as maybe entertainment, looking at more as kind of an opportunity to be educated and then also move us to a point of action, which I think that that's kind of what the, the point of the film really is more than it is to be purely entertainment. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. And apart from some of the cheesiness of the setup, I thought that was really far-fetched. And then even some of the process in which Tim Ballard goes about trying to rescue the, the children, I personally yeah. found, oh, this is stretching it a bit. Like this just seems like a movie. However, in real life, at least Tim Ballard and those that he's worked with allege that what you see on screen is a lot like what happens in the rescue missions that they've done. So apart from, yeah, some of the cheesiness, some of the movie stuff, I thought it was very glacially paced I liked it as an episode, as an e- example of if you have never confronted yourself with what goes on in the real world in this situation, because right. this really happens, this is a somewhat nice almost entry point into challenging yourself about, well, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's com- exactly what this f- film moves us to. I think I would recommend people see it. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily say not to, but I, but I would say it would be a bit of caution. I mean, it is subject matter that's probably for a mature audience only. You know, this isn't, it, it's loosely a faith-based film. I think because it's associated Pretty loose. With, yeah, with Angel Studios, also even that Tim's not a Christian himself, but that, um, you know, that you, you're you able to kind of go to the, go to the fact that it's, uh, it does have a faith element to it. But I don't think just because it does that, that that makes it accessible for the whole audience. I mean, I think this is really for your mature t- teens and on up. Yeah. And so it's been a bit of a surprise that there's been some movements around the place, particularly in the US of Christians getting behind the film in a way which would suggest the film is quote unquote Christian, but it isn't. And there's like one or two lines in the film that talk about the value of God's children and them not being for sale. But apart from that, there's nothing really else in the film that's like straight up faith no. or Christian. But the film, hasn't it been, Russ, like a lightning rod of like oh, all of God. these different types of controversies that I don't think you could have seen some of them coming, but not all of them. But there's a massive convergence of left and right sides of religion and politics. 
and then even Angel Studios distribution model. Yeah. And also Tim Ballard, whether he has or has not done what's up on screen. And then some of the investigations that are going on of the organizations he's been involved with. And then the QAnon stuff and Jim Kavitzel's comments. And then the director in just the past week or so, Russ, just before it's coming out in Australia, Alejandro Monteverde, basically trying to distance himself from Jim Kavitzel and what Jim Kavitzel's been saying. Like what? And all those TikTok <laughs> videos about empty cinemas and were people in the studio or not. Right. It's it's incredible. And then um, uh, it's good that we're having a conversation about the actual movie. Exactly. That's what I prefer all to those say things. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, I mean, I think it's definitely given rise to why it's had such a, a huge following. I mean, they're, they're just people out of sheer interest kind of wanting to know what is going on with this film. And honest, it, it was one of the things that it, for me, because I've been watching it happening over the United States for a while. So then when finally to get to see it, I'm kind of going, oh, okay. I mean, wow, it's confronting and it's quite a tale and I'm interested in it. It's really relatively good quality film. I mean, not great, but it was relatively good quality, but what was it that, you know, caused all this? And so it's fascinating how this kind of grassroots movement has kind of gotten around it. And then kind of this, this groundswell of, um, audiences kind of getting along to it or maybe not, I mean, whatever, but, um, I think that I'd rather kind of focus on the film opposed to like all these controversies that are so crazy and kind of diving into those because it's really not, that's really even not my, even my expertise. But I think that uh, after seeing a film like this, that I was pleasantly surprised that it's one worth seeing, but I probably myself don't want to go watch it again, especially being the, you know, a father, being a grandfather, all these sort of things. But I think that it does move us towards action steps. And I think that there are groups out there that are trusted organizations like um, Destiny Rescue and that, that you can encourage people after seeing a film like this to take action and supporting it or being a part of the process or the solution opposed to being part of the problem. I don't know. Yeah. I thought a powerful part of the film, and I agree with um, pretty much all your comments there, Russ, about the actual film itself. And I do think that some people will be slightly disappointed when they see the film after there's been so much talk about it. Like, it's it's just a movie. (laughs) It is just a movie. But yeah, what it does leave you with is uh, going wanting to pursue action, but I don't think it um, bangs you over the head with it. I was quite impressed no. with that. It doesn't become a polemic about you need to get up out of your seat now, rise up and do something, but it should just by virtue of the subject matter alone stir you into at very least considering what could I do. Exactly, exactly. That, and I, I think that that's what I came away with. There was a kind of an underwhelmed experience just because of all of the the talk about the film. But then actually analyzing the film, I was like, well, no, actually, for especially for a studio like Angel Studios to put this out, it was good quality. They did a great job with the story. And I really thought some of the characters were really well developed. And so overall, it was good. I would re- Except recommend Except for it. Mira Savino as the <laughs> wife, who is like one of the most underused actresses out of recent movies that I've seen. She must have been on screen for like 30 seconds. The why she was even in it, you kind of go, okay, you're Academy Award winner, but you literally have maybe five lines. <laughs> but uh, well, I mean, you know, what, what do you do? I mean, maybe some of it was all on the editing floor. I don't know what, what, what happened as far as what that, what, what that was. But I mean, overall, I think that it would make the watch list for me, but I, it will probably stop after my first watching. I don't know how about you. Yeah, it makes mine largely because of the subject matter. I think that just gets it onto the list because people should be confronted by and talking about this and we should be doing something together to stop it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree with you. Now, 
we're going to really shift gears. I mean, we're not we're not going to be talking about Fast and the Furious, but we are going to really shift it as far as looking at some of the different films that are coming out here in Australia specifically. But also, we're going to be talking about a couple of guys who have made films that their labels are on the films. They have very unique styles. Some of it appeals to some and some of it doesn't. But the first one we're going to look at is Wes Anderson's um, Asteroid City. Now, I know you haven't had a chance to see it, so I'll talk a little bit about it. But before we get into it, I'm curious, are you a Wes Anderson? Anderson fan. Yep. yep. Since day one, like since his first yep. Rushmore. And if anyone hasn't seen that, they should rush out to see that exactly. because he blew up more with Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic and Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel. But before that, um, actually not even Rushmore, sorry, Bottle Rocket was his Bottle first Rocket one. Bottle Rocket was the first one, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's also a ripper. And you can even see from that, like his, um, his style, just overall in terms of performance and look and costume and cinematography, all of it, editing is even there in the first one, Bottle Rocket. And he's just kind of gone on to become increasingly more Wes Anderson as he goes along. Exactly. It, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's fascinating. He, he was at Wes Anderson at those beginning films because I remember Rushmore, I was really, I was like, wow. I mean, I, I went back to watch Bottle Rocket afterwards, but then Rushmore was just like, this is so unique, such a great style, so different within kind of the whole filmmaking realm. But then to see kind of what he's actually become over the years, because honestly, our family loves the fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, it was one of those, it's an interesting one that children would actually enjoy Wes Anderson, but he really can. I mean, it was rolled, rolled the all book, but uh, yeah, yeah Isle so of Dogs, not so much. I think Isle nah. of Dogs is a lot harder for adults and for kids, but, but totally. fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, uh, but I, I, I agree with you. I think that there, it's a hit or miss as far as people, whether or not they like it or accept kind of what his style is. Um, but it's interesting as you kind of go into Asteroid City because so it's kind of grown. He's, you know, so you have the Grand Budapest Hotel, which got all this attention. The Royal Tannenbaums got all this attention. Um, but the French Dispatch didn't do all that crash hot. And then, then we're on to Asteroid City. And this one is uh, one, again, very unique style too. I mean, same style with Wes Anderson. It's 1955. Students and parents are coming across the America and they're traveling to this imaginary American desert town called Asteroid City, which is based on where an asteroid had fell, fallen um, thousands of years prior. And they have a celebration every year. The asteroids, it's the asteroid day, you know, kind of coming in. And it of brings course. in... Oh, of course, you know, as you would. And, you know, and they come in on trains, which, you know, as you would with uh, was with a Wes Anderson film and all of a sudden all of them are at this one hotel or motel that's actually out in the middle of nowhere. And they bring all these unique characters in. So they get to book them all in and have some fun out in the desert um, in Wes Anderson style. And so and it's all star started, isn't it, Russ? That's well, that's the only issue. OK, it's not the only issue. For this okay, film. before we get to the issues, then let's go. Let's start off with a positive. Then, what did you like about it? Yeah, because um, as you, as we, as we're both Wes Anderson fans, so like, let's get to the positive first. Because I'm hearing some <laughs> negative might be coming our way. <laughs> it's it's not all negative. It's just that it, it, I think almost Wes Anderson's become almost too big for himself. Like he's like trying to do too much of who he is, opposed to just kind of getting back to his basic. But I think the French Dispatch w was that it was like yeah. peak Wes Anderson, but further. Yeah, it just kind of went went that went that way. Well, with this one too, I mean, it's still it had i mean the visuals if you were to even just kind of turn off the sound and just watch this you'd be marveling at it because i mean what he's able to do with a frame and what he does with his characters and how he brings them all in and he does do a, a masterful job of kind of doing backstories and the the main story they all woven together that's kind of this circular kind of motion that kind of comes together in the end where you're going that doesn't make any sense or maybe that's not the answer or the satisfactory answer that you want but yet 
it does in Wes Anderson's world, you know, so it really, it does all that. I really love the mastery of how he does, how he works with the words and also the visual complement to it all. Um, but probably like you're saying, yeah, the, the challenge is now it's gotten to be this, who's the next celebrity game is what you're doing. You know, it's like, I mean, how many more people can you add into this and where it gets to be just kind of over overwhelming. It's almost kind of going down the mirror Sorvino, what you were saying with that, like, why would you bring that great actor in, but literally for a line, you know, or literally for one scene doesn't make a lot of sense. And I know it's Wes Anderson. I know that's what they do, but with this one, it just got to the point where you're going, I, I'm not even sure why you had to have all of these various characters come in because some of it, because some of the dialogue is brilliant. I mean, it just takes you down some great paths as far as discussions on death, grieving, God, heaven, all these things, that I, and parenthood even, you know? So, I mean, it was fascinating to kind of look at, but it got to be a bit of a dog's breakfast after a while when you're trying to bring in all these different characters. Wow, that's a pity. That, that's uh, the same sort of critique could be offered of directors like Woody Allen, Robert Altman, Quentin Tarantino, even Martin Scorsese sometimes, where they load up their films with huge ensembles and they often can wrangle them very, very well and use them even in small cameos, can use someone powerfully and effectively. And Wes Anderson's done that previously. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not surprised to hear. I think the French Dispatch was like that a little bit too. It just sure. seems like you've got this cool actor because they're cool. And uh, that that's it. I, I can't see any other reason why 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 they've showed up. It's not for depth of character or or for like significant impact or consequence that they're making upon the film, which is disappointing then to hear that Asteroid City is leaning more that way, in your opinion, Russ, compared with some of his earlier work. Yeah. Well, and this here here's what's funny here. I get to bring in a Disney animated film. The 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 and it's Asteroid City, so there should be no surprise here. But um in the, the there's a film called Bolt where all of a sudden they, these pigeons are trying to bring in these different ideas to be able to kind of get them to kind of do new direction with the the TV show that they're doing and they just wait for it wait for it aliens is what they do and so with this film all of a sudden it felt like that all of a sudden you're going oh yeah yeah I guess the aliens are supposed to be there but it just all of a sudden they're there and you're going what was the point you know uh, why why did we, <laughs> why did we why did we do that you know and, and so it, it but then again. I will give this to Wes Anderson. Um, I've only seen it the once. I have a feeling it's one of those films you need to see a couple times and you go, oh, maybe that, maybe that's the layering. Maybe I missed that, you know, because I think there are those different components. And so I'm not going to write it off completely. But for me, it just wasn't one that I go, yeah, I want to go see it again like I did with some of his other films. I feel like that about the Life Aquatic and the Darjeeling Limited, Wes yep. Anderson films, particularly Life Aquatic, which I think a lot of people, for some reason, which I don't understand, don't really like. I think it's fantastic. And the more you watch that, the layers, particularly relationships, and I think Asteroid City's got it as well. There's often relationships between fathers and sons or brothers yeah, right. in most of his films. Almost all and of his films. I have not investigated Wes Anderson's life, so I don't understand what his obsession, his apparent obsession with it is. But I found in The Life Aquatic, yeah, the more you revisit it, it's not just the the look and the feel and the coolness and the the wit and the sophistication of like everything that you can see on screen. There's more depth and emotion in the relationships on screen 
than what it might suggest on first blush because he is such a consummate visual and audio story a storyteller. Exactly. So so that's why I'm not I'm it's it's kind of more the jury's out on this one for me. I mean now I'm gonna have to admit it, I'm a loyalist in the sense of Bill Murray wasn't in this movie. And so I, oh, because he had COVID. Unfortunately, he got COVID right before filming of it. And so it's funny how, because he's been in every single, every single one of his films, I think, except for maybe Bottle Rocket. But I think uh, that's right. Yes. I think he's in all, all of them. And, um, and so within that, he just adds, there's something about it. You know, there's just something about his character, his style that he just adds to the layering of it all. And Steve Carell did a great job of kind of taking on the role that Bill was supposed to do. But it, I, I think for me, I'm not going to necessarily just write it all off. I'm going to need to go back and kind of watch it a few more times. But it wasn't one that I went out going, yes, I'm going to recommend this to everybody. So what will you be dwelling on though? So as you revisit in your mind and it sounds like you're trying to get it from three stars to four stars, as you're thinking about that, <laughs> Russ, what, what, what are you left contemplating? You know what? Th- this film is fascinating because like some of the things you brought up from Life Aquatic, it actually did this. But one of the key things was the father-son character as far as Augie and his son Woodrow. And it, it, one of the things that occurs, you see it in the trailer, um, Augie's wife has died, but he hasn't told his children yet. And so it's like, you laugh, but it's, it's actually quite tragic. And, but then he finally, one of the lines he uses, he said, well, she's in heaven, even though I don't believe it exists because I'm an atheist, but you're Episcopalian because your mother. And so that's what you believe that kind of thing. And then it goes on to kind of showing the influence of their father in his faith position actually changed all of the children eventually to kind of what their faith positions were. And it really stood out for me. Uh, you know, again, it'd be fascinating to kind of know what Wes Anderson's background is, why he even kind of digs into that kind of realm. But because he plays it for laughs, but really it's a very deep and meaningful thing when you're looking at how influential you are as a parent to your child, especially when it comes to your faith, and really talking about what it is that you believe or don't believe about God. And um, I, I felt that really stood out to me because it wasn't just played for a line or a throwaway line. It was kind of a very significant component of the film that kind of was a thread that went throughout. And I think it's one, especially as a father and a grandfather, really kind of looking at the value of really investing in our children, especially on the topic of faith. Talk about going the opposite end of the spectrum. All of a sudden, we're hitting going all the way to Guy Ritchie. So, looking at a Guy Ritchie film. Yeah, it's quite the <laughs> quite the movie conversation we're having. I'm really liking it, and I'm, I'm quite liking the the diversity. Even though there are some quite strong links I found between Sound of Sound of Freedom yes. and the Covenant, which we're about to get onto. Exactly. So, but but Guy Ritchie, similar to as far as a very unique style. Talk about a very different style than say Wes Anderson. Um, kind of a self made man in so many ways. Didn't he? I don't even think he went to a film school. He just kind of went out and he started making films the way that he did. And but yet. He has this style that so many people kind of know of and as far as rough and tumble, where one is kind of more the auteur kind of um, artist over here. You've got Guy Ritchie who's just pretty much a a bare knuckles, kind of get in there, get fight. Let's kind of try and make this. And also making one that's very testosterone driven, especially a lot of his his films tend to be very um, loud, bombastic, and um, really in your face. But yet still I find quite artistic and I actually enjoy his style. I actually enjoy him a lot. Are there certain films you enjoy about Guy Ritchie films? I've actually um, gone off the boil a bit with Guy Ritchie in the last couple of years, Russ. So I haven't been keeping up with his more recent stuff I can't remember the last movie I saw I wasn't a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and then since then I've sort of dipped off so I more prefer Lockstock's Two Smoking Barrels Snatch like the movies he kicked off with 
So those early ones still stick with me. Like I'm sure they stick with pretty much anyone that's seen them and just his hyperkinetic style. And But as you write, as you rightly said, quite artistic too. And you can see his influence, like Quentin Tarantino, like a magpie of movies, like they just take right. from all over the shop, but they're actually able to blend them together in a way that becomes theirs. It doesn't just feel like are uh, you just ripped off like every – Arnie action movie from the eighties. Exactly. Like it, it doesn't. He never really feels like that. So I, I enjoy that about Guy Ritchie, and I really enjoyed the Guy Ritchiness of the Covenant. So bringing what Guy Ritchie does to a modern war film it was like like the, I would. I don't know. On paper, I wouldn't necessarily thought that would work that well. I thought he might go too over the top, too bombastic, and I didn't <laughs> find that he did at all with the Covenant. You know, that's what was so different because definitely with the kind of the all the different styles he uses as far as split screen and all the things he's done. Cause I have, I've actually enjoyed the gentleman. I've enjoyed um, even the most recent one, the o- operation fortune ruse de guerre. Um, what about Aladdin? The, that remake of Aladdin, was that any good? It was, it actually wasn't bad for a Disney remake. You know, it was kind of a Guy Ritchie version. It was literally, you know, them running through everything. It kind of makes sense with Aladdin running all the time that it would kind of use the Guy Ritchie style. I hope they don't make a second one. Um, Cause it was, I think the biggest of all of uh, most of the other live action films, except for the Lion King. It's one of the best ones as far as that goes, as far as financially it did well, but it was good. It wasn't, I mean, it was still just Aladdin, but it still was, it wasn't bad, but I think all in all, I mean, I, I, he has been a hit or miss. There's been some other films that weren't all that great. Um, but I do like the risk taking that he even took with say King Arthur and all those that, um, he still as a filmmaker is willing to take some risks, even with his popularity and what he's and his success. But with this one, yeah, I mean, I, because I, you know, as far as like the Hurt Locker, you know, Lone Survivor, all these other films that you kind of see that are kind of coming out of this new era of looking at the military and the impact that they've had, especially on the Middle East. I didn't, I'm like, when really do we need another one of those? But I really thought that he did a great job of really kind of honoring it, yet still kind of putting his unique twist on it. But um, yeah, uh, I think Sound of Freedom could have taken a note from the Covenant, Russ, <laughs> and where Sound of Freedom was sort of declaring itself more of a true story, and then it's been backing away from that. Some of the filmmakers, right. since some of the controversy, the Covenant is based on real events, but it's a fictionalized account of what happened, and the. It's like they've created a stronger story out of it. I found it a more compelling one than than Sound of Freedom, as in terms of a, a script and characters and being with them the whole way. And so this is largely set around a U.S. Army Sergeant John Kinley, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. It's in about 2018 in Afghanistan, and the backdrop is um, the how the U.S. military and other uh, international forces, including Australia, were working with local people as translators to help find and stop Taliban insurgents. And this film, The Covenant, really anchors in the relationship between John Kinley and a translator called Ahmed, who's played by Dar Salim. Russ, I don't know, I've never seen Dar Salim before, but he's going to get so much more work. That guy was superb. He was great. I mean, I'm like, actually both of them. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal, here, we're already jumping into the review, but. Let's go, because basically that's that's the setup. And then to give too much more away is to give too much more away. But you could imagine that probably things aren't going to go well. And then they have to work out how to get through those things. And the two of them may be united in that. But (laughs) heading towards where it gets to, Russ, I'm trying hard to choose my words carefully because I, I really enjoyed 
and was gripped by how it unfurled and where it eventually got to. But the two of them together are, are one of the main reasons to see this film, Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim. So I think that both of them, I mean, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is probably one of the most underrated um, even though he has, he's had a successful career, but yet I think that he's just willing to go in and just kind of put himself all into these characters. He oh, man. Preach them, it, brother. You know, and so I just, I, I, I just have really enjoyed his career throughout. I mean, pretty much every role he's been in, I've loved the film because of him. Usually more so than maybe he, he did another soldier movie. Was a Jarhead with yeah, Sam Jarhead. Mendes <laughs> years ago, and uh, End of Watch. This reminded me a bit of that yeah. character in End of Watch. He can, he can play like a really hardened bloke Jake Gyllenhaal but there's something uh relatable about him even though and this one he's kind of hard as nails and uh, there's some there's some humor in him every now and again but there he's often just really kind of stoic but there's something that you know is a bit brittle about him at the same time and then matched up with Dar Salim I really like the backstory that they gave uh, Ahmed which is very loosely described but it's so well defined that it makes a lot of sense of even when you get to some of the more intense and more movie-like situations, there is a great shootout scene in this film that runs for three minutes and you know that because they tell you there's a bomb set and it's going to go off in three minutes. And instead of where other movies you're like trying to count down the seconds of like how are they going to stretch this out and this is all a bit ridiculous and you get caught up in trying to work out, oh, they're just trying to be smart here and I'm going to pick them at where they've done the cuts and all this sort of thing. I didn't do that. No. In this one, Russ, I was engrossed in how are they going to get through this in three minutes and do what they're going to do. And then when they get to on the other side, Russ, I found this is a great example of Guy Ritchie's The Covenant White it's so strong is even with all the way they manipulate the situation to get to the other side, what they've already explained about these characters and where they get to makes total sense. And it I does. believed it. It's believable almost to the point. I don't know about you, but I'm like going, is this a real story? Is this a real story? Yeah, it feels I was like, how is it not a real story? I was like, when this has got to be a real story. So that was where I just felt like he just cut this line that was like, going, oh man, you want this to be a real story. You want to know that this actually happened because it was extraordinary, but it's step believable. Does that make sense? So, you know, yeah. it's, it's big, but yet it really kind of brings in. But the, the one thing I really loved what he was he's able to do, I think that it's something very unique to Guy Ritchie in this modern era, and especially within that kind of military atmosphere and also his relationship with, um, with Abdul, is the relationship and communication between men in particular, kind of the visceral, minimalistic, but yet how it can be a look, how it can be just one phrase, a turn of phrase that just kind of turns everybody around. And some of the scenes, they virtually had no dialogue, but yet it was still so deep and meaningful. You're going, I was like laughing. There was a whole scene that you would go, that wasn't comedic, but it was hilarious how these two men were just kind of interchanging between one another. And you're going, oh, I love it. He just captured something about that that just really um, helped to kind of complement and lift this to even a kind of a higher level for me. So I, I really did. Outside of, I think one of the things you're going to say, putting his name in the title of the film, um, you know, maybe that's a bit much. But besides that, I think that The Covenant was great. Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. I don't know if we really needed his name there, but anyway. Yeah, that's like my one negative comment about the whole whole movie. Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Like, why would you need to put your name, like, badged right across the the title of of the film? It is his most mature work, though. It is. At least from what I've seen. You've seen much more of his stuff, but but I, I was really pleasantly surprised. 
with how strong this was. You're right about the understatement, the minimalism in it. It gets bombastic occasionally, and particularly towards the end, I thought it was starting to push it a little bit. But what you saw between Ahmed and John in the middle of the film and then how that sets up what John goes on to do, I thought you've, you've kind of you've sold me on all of this. You've captured this so well that even if I'm not totally buying what's happening in the finale, I'm still, I'm still with you on this journey. And I think exactly. one of the reasons, and this goes back to the Sound of Freedom thing, Russ, is where uh, the Tim Ballard character in Sound of Freedom is confronted with what am I going to do about this? There's something wrong here. I know what the right thing is to do. I'm going to do it. I think John Kinley's character in The Covenant is like to the next level where he's tormented and racked by the, like, the, 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 almost the, the inconvenience of being put in a situation where you can see what the right thing is to do. You know it's going to be super hard. Other people aren't doing it. Right. Like, oh, my goodness, I'm losing sleep. The only answer is I'm going to have to do it. Yeah. I, I, and, there's, and there's a personal almost guilt-ridden reason why he does. But beyond that, Russ, I just found him a great portrait of someone who, and this isn't me, like this actually challenges me, this is not me, where you get confronted with a situation like this and this John Kinley character is like, well, I'm just going to have to do it. That's I'm right. Like, there is no, this is exactly the right answer. And the, the conversation he has with his wife in contrast with Tim Ballard and the Mira Silvina character <laughs> in Sound of Freedom, which is basically non-existent, the exchange he has with his wife about what he's then going to go and do for Ahmed and his family, like that, that felt real and that felt like you can understand his wife saying what she does and the response that she has. So there was so much realism and believability about this film, Russ, and it's not even a true story, but it's, but it's clearly based on true events. And if you've seen and followed any news headlines from Australia, US, since the uh, Taliban reclaimed Afghanistan, since the Western forces left, there's been a lot said about the treatment of translators and the ones that helped the force the military forces and the way they've been treated or not so much since yeah, then. Exactly. This movie makes a really great statement about them without rubbing in your face, I didn't think. No, it's I didn't. More, this is apparent. It's like you can't deny this. It, yeah, I think it showed the accountability on both sides and also kind of the travesties of war. But then I, uh, what they really able to nail is kind of the loyalty of men and what you're, what are you willing to do? This goes back to even what we were talking about with Sound of Freedom. What would you do in that scenario? Would you be willing to step up or would you think that this wasn't really my responsibility and I just need to let it go? And so I really found that the loyalty factor just was wonderful. But then on top of it, it was just really good film and like you said i think it reminds me of there's a couple films back that he did called wrath of man that um also was a very mature more mature film less comedy and more just telling a great story really in a nice concise way i think both of them have really done that well so yeah and i love that it was called the covenant that it like um threw us back to biblical language of a covenant being it's like that's like more than a promise it's it's like more concrete more right you can't break it than that. And if you go into the covenant with a mindset of it's this like unbreakable bond that you can't renege on, that's a really strong undercurrent that goes through the covenant right to the final moments. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, hey, we, we've come to the end of the watch list. Um, I, well, wait a minute before we go on. So oh, yes. it sounds like both of us would probably put and Guy Ritchie's The Covenant on your watch list. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I was hoping that was clear, Russ. Yes. That's a big yes from me. <laughs> 
<laughs> definitely for me too. So I definitely think that, you know, as far as looking at it, we both would say the Sound of Freedom, definitely worth seeing. Um, Asteroid City is worth seeing, but probably I, I'll have to go back and see it again. I may come back to you guys and see whether or not I liked it even more. Um, and then definitely probably the highlight of this of this watch list was probably Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Worthwhile seeing. Streaming right now on lo- your local service, most likely on Prime Video. Um, there is another great film coming out. It's worthwhile seeing called Blackberry. If you can remember the Blackberry phone, it kind of kind of talks I do. about. Yeah, it even talks about um, that kind of rise and fall of that of that phone prior to the iPhone, how it was really the dominant force within that. And you, it's hard to imagine that a corporate film like that would be interesting, but it was really worthwhile. So it's worthwhile getting out to see. So thanks so much. Make sure you're subscribing to the watch list and also the other podcasts. Cause Ben, you have a, quite a few other podcasts on there on hope 103.2 as well as Laura Bennett. And so make sure on hope 103.2 that you're uh, subscribing to it. Also say like on your uh, YouTube channel, if you're watching it on YouTube and just remember we're here at the watch list next time. Time, we may be able to pull up your chair, grab that popcorn, and join us on the watch list. Watch me. Watch me.